following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The text for this morning will be Luke chapter 19, verses 1, uh, 11 to 27. So I invite you to turn to your Bibles if you have it. If not, you can look up here at the screen. And it reads, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country and received for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping What I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. God, grant to us spiritual eyes to understand spiritual truths. Help us to wrestle with this difficult teaching and to understand your heart behind the things that you're saying. Grant to us a perspective on what it means to say Christ is king over us, that you would truly reign in us and through us. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before jumping into the unpacking of this parable that I just read this morning, um, I feel the need to go into a little bit of uh, contextual history with you so that you can understand what Jesus was trying to say through this parable. Um, As you may know, the person who was ruling Palestine or Israel At the time that Jesus was born, you know, the one who slaughtered all the newborn male babies, um, his name was Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great, though, died when Jesus was still a little boy. And when Herod died, he gave the majority of his inheritance 
to his son Archelaus. Okay? The problem, though, was Herod couldn't transfer his title of king to his son Archelaus because that was something only the Romans could do because the Romans ruled everything, right? And so this, although the Romans allowed local leaders to rule over the lands that they conquered, that title of king was a privilege only given to very few non-Roman rulers. And so what Archelaus did was he gathered an entourage of his family members and his supporters, and he made this big pilgrimage to Rome to stand before Caesar to ask to be granted the title of king, just like his father had. So he arrives in Rome... But what he didn't realize was that when the people of Israel heard that he was doing this, they sent a delegation of about 50 Jews to follow him. And when Archelaus stood before Caesar and said, make me king, these 50 Jews stood up and said, please don't. And the reason why they said that was because Archelaus was a bad dude. He was a cruel and horrible ruler. In fact, not long before this trip to Rome, Archelaus slaughtered 3,000 Jews on Passover and dumped their bodies into the temple, desecrating it. Not only that, but he killed and tortured many other Jews. And so their message was loud and clear. We don't want this guy as our king. In fact, in that visit to Rome, Some of Archelaus' own family turned against him and said, don't make this guy king. He's no good. So Caesar hears all this, and he listens to the testimony, and he says, Archelaus, go back home to Jerusalem. You're not going to get the title king. This is what Caesar said. He said, go back and rule your people and be a better ruler and earn it. And if you prove yourself to be worthy of the title of king... I will give you that title of king one day. Well, unfortunately for Archelaus, he never became a better ruler. And to the day that he died, he was never given the title of king. All of this happened less than 30 years before Jesus stood at the threshold of Jerusalem and told this parable that day. That story of Archelaus would have been fresh on the minds of every Jew. They all would have known what happened 30 years ago. Um, and I hope when you hear the story of Archelaus, suddenly this parable of the ten minas uh, really comes to life in a whole new way. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, all of the events that we've been looking at in the last two years, okay, because we've been in the series for a long time, I preached on Luke 9 two years ago, all right? Everything that we looked at since that message two years ago has been capturing the events of this long journey to Jerusalem where Jesus knows that he is going to die and that 
the days of his earthly ministry are winding down. Over the three years of his public ministry, Jesus' popularity grew, it soared. The crowds grew exponentially. And Jesus became a household name in Israel. Wherever he traveled, word would spread like wildfire in the villages. And the moment he began teaching, huge crowds would gather, pressing on each other to get a front row seat to what he was teaching and the miracles that he was performing. But as I've mentioned in previous messages, the popularity that Jesus was gaining was more like the popularity of a Hollywood A-list celebrity, you know, rather than a savior. People loved being there for the show, but not many people were willing to follow him as a disciple. And so as I said, after Luke 9, the whole tone of Jesus' teaching begins to change as he begins to call the crowds to quit being spectators and saying, make your decision here. You can't just follow and watch and be in awe forever. You have to make a decision to make me Lord. It also changes because you sense an urgency with Jesus in teaching his disciples to get ready because he's saying, I'm not going to be with you forever. In fact, I'm about to leave soon. You're going to be on your own, and you need to understand the events that are going to unfold after my leaving and what is going to transpire so that his disciples could get ready for that period. Um, And now they have reached Jerusalem. The journey is almost over. This is the final parable Jesus teaches before he enters Jerusalem. And we enter into what is known as the Passion Week, which we are about to honor in just a couple weeks. It's weird. I was looking at the calendar. I started the Luke series in the summer of 2012, okay? That's almost four years ago. Um, Now, as we're getting into, you know, Pastor Peter is going to preach on Palm Sunday next week. And it happens to fall right on Lent season. I, I, we're not that organized to orchestrate that, okay, that we plotted this out. I, I just really feel like this was God's timing to just lay it out perfectly so that we're going to hear a message on Palm Sunday weeks before we celebrate Palm Sunday, okay? Well, it seems like everybody recognizes that something special is happening as Jesus is marching to Jerusalem. Because most of his ministries was done in the north country in an area known as Galilee where he was from. And so the people begin to read the signs. There's murmurings already that he is the Messiah. That he's the one that was foretold in the Old Testament prophecies. And now he is going to Jerusalem, the capital city. All the ducks are lining up in a row. All the pieces are coming together And so the people begin to anticipate, this is not coincidence. This guy is the Messiah, and he is going to Jerusalem to beat up the Romans and claim his rightful throne of David. And the kingdom of God is about to come. And so when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, a huge crowd was there waiting for him to basically coronate him as king. They begin to lay these branches down at his feet, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. 
save us. And it says in Luke 19, verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, immediately. Luke tells us that everyone thought that the end of history was right around the corner, that God's kingdom was going to appear at any minute when Jesus enters Jerusalem. And so to correct that expectation... He tells this parable. And he begins by saying that there was a nobleman who went to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Sound familiar? It sounds a lot like Archelaus, doesn't it? Right? A ruler who went to seek a kingship for himself. Okay? But in this story, this parable, it's clear that Jesus is not referring to Archelaus. He's referring to himself. He is the nobleman who's going to a distant country to seek a kingship. And so right off the bat, Jesus makes it clear that his entrance into Jerusalem is not going to mark the end of history. It doesn't end like this. In fact, Jesus tells tells them that by entering into Jerusalem, what's going to be triggered is a rather long period of history in which it's going to seem like he is absent, that he is gone. And in fact, he gives further detail, and he says the citizens that he ruled over will be revealed in his absence that they hated him. And they're going to send a delegation after him. We do not want this man to reign over us. Again, sound familiar? Sounds exactly like what happened to Archelaus, right? But what Jesus says is, I'm actually talking about myself. What will be revealed is that the subjects of this master's kingdom are going to express deep hatred for me and are going to do everything they can to prevent me from being king. We don't want him as our king. We don't want this guy to rule over us. This is the world that you and I find ourselves in today, isn't it? It is a world in which God often seems nowhere to be found, like he is in a distant country on some other business. And in his apparent absence, he is attacked and mocked with impunity by his subjects. Just listen to the things that people say about God and Christianity in these end times. Thomas Jefferson The Christian God is a three-headed monster, cruel, vengeful, and capricious. If one wishes to know more of this raging, three-headed beast-like God, one only needs to look at the caliber of people who say they serve him. They are always of two classes, fools and hypocrites. This is one of the founding fathers of this country, okay? And this is what he said about Christians. Albert Einstein The word God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. Carl Sagan, it is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. God for you is where you sweep away all the mysteries of the world, all the challenges to our intelligence. You simply turn your mind off and say, God did it. 
Getting a little more into our modern times, our contemporaries, Bill Maher. Let's face it. God has an ego problem. Why do we always have to worship him? Okay. Richard Dawkins, great atheist, spokesperson in our day. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. This is what the world is saying about God. He's like an absentee landlord who has left the building and everyone is on the attack to tear him down and cut him to pieces. The 19th century anti-Christian lawyer Robert Ingersoll would often go to lectures in different cities on tour to speak against Christianity and against God. Um, it's interesting because his father was actually a Congregationalist minister who used to serve with Charles Finney, the great revivalist. Um, but he would just deliver these scathing attacks for anyone who believed in God, saying, what, in, what a fool you were. And during some of these lectures, uh, one particular one that was noted in the history books, he said, um, middle of his lecture, he took out his watch, and he said, I'll give God a chance to prove that he exists. If he exists and he is all-powerful, I challenge him to strike me dead sometime in the next five minutes. And then he would just wait. And you can imagine how long five minutes like that would have been. Those five minutes of silence were so unbearable for some people that eyewitnesses say some people fainted. They passed out because of the tension. Some people had to leave the room because they couldn't take it anymore because they thought for sure lightning was going to strike and kill this guy, okay? But here's the thing. Five minutes passed, and Ingersoll was still standing and breathing. And he mockingly shouted at the crowd, See, there is no God. I am still very much alive. And you wonder, why doesn't God defend himself? in moments like that. How about just once, just once, during one of these dares by atheists, in mid-sentence, a bolt of lightning, and God would vindicate himself, and the world would tremble. But as Jesus suggests in this parable, this is not how God operates during this period of history. God is present. He has never left our world. But there is a sense in which he seems hidden from us, as as if he has left us on our own, as if he has traveled to a far country. Why doesn't God defend his own honor? Why doesn't he reveal himself more obviously and powerfully to his doubters and naysayers? Well, I'm going to return to this point at the end of my message. But I want to carry on for the way that Jesus unfolds the story. Because before leaving on this journey to seek his kingdom, the nobleman entrusts some of his wealth to his servants, expecting them to use his money to conduct business on his behalf during his absence. The ESV translates this command like this, engage in business until I come. Now, I think a strong argument 
could be made that a better way to translate that command would be engage in business because I will come or because one day I will return. Now, you may say, until I come back, because I come back, what's the big deal? Does that really matter? Um, I think it does matter. Because think about the circumstances under which he gave this command. The master is heading off to a distant land to seek a kingship for himself. But his own citizens hate him. And they rise up against him and they send a delegation to try to thwart his efforts. And they're going to meet him at his destination and try to prevent him from becoming king. In other words, the city is in chaos. No one knows how this is all going to play out. Who's going to come out on top? In the situation of Archelaus, he lost, didn't he? He was the loser. So you can imagine how frightening this would be to a bunch of servants. Say, I'm going to go out of town for a really long time. I'm going to seek this kingship, and I know everyone in this town hates my guts, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to take my money and represent me and invest it and do some great things with it in this town. Can you now kind of put the picture together as to what's happening here? Listen, obey me, engage in my business. Why? Because I'm coming back. Because I am coming back. I think the message of the master to the servants was this. Listen, do what I ask of you. I know that we're living in some really confusing times. And you may not even be sure if you're going to be on the winning side when this conflict is over, you know? Like, you may actually wonder, should I switch sides here? But this is what the nobleman says to his servants. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And the implicit message is, I will be victorious. I'm going to defeat my enemies. I will come back as king. So believe that. And do what I say. And this is the call of Jesus to every generation of his followers. Because in every generation of the church, followers of Jesus have had to struggle with the same dilemma. Have I chosen the right side? Will everything I've given up for Jesus be worth it one day? Is he really going to come back? Is he king? The truth is that living in this world, choosing Jesus can sometimes feel like you've chosen the wrong team, right? It can feel like you're on the losing team at times. That's the sentiment that Peter captured in his second letter to the churches in Asia. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You see, even from the very first generation of Christians, they had to deal with being laughed at for their faithfulness to the master. They were mocked, saying, he is never coming back. There is no return. You're you're fools to believe in this. Fools to live the way that you do. Jesus tells a similar parable in Matthew 25 known as the parable of the talents, okay? 
But in that story, one of the details that is highlighted is very different from this one, is that each servant gets a different amount of talents, right? But in this story, every one of them gets the same amount of money. Each of them gets one mina. When the master returns, they're told to give an account of the activities that they did with that money. And what's interesting is they are not awarded based on their success, but simply on their faithfulness. And he said to them, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You were faithful. You believed me when I said I was going to come back. And you lived your whole life anticipating my return. What does it mean to be a faithful servant living for the return of the king? I think it means that in whatever circumstance we face in our lives, we're asking the question, how can I serve God in this situation? What does he want to do through me and in me to accomplish his will? I think this is at the heart of what Jesus is asking of his servants, is you now represent my will, my agenda. And that has to be your constant prayer. What is it that God wants in this situation? Susan B. Anthony, the great woman suffragist, wrote, I distrust those people who know so well what God wants them to do because I notice it always coincides with their own desires. Now, that's a bit unfair, and it's painting with too broad a brush, but there is some truth in what Susan B. Anthony is saying, isn't there? In almost every situation we face in life, we are instinctively drawn to the choices that personally benefit us, aren't we? That's the truth. That's human nature. Is I'm automatically drawn to the options that benefit me. And it's all too easy to use God to justify the things we want out of life. Marjorie Thompson says, Sin is a deeply rooted disorientation in which we tend to see all things primarily in relation to ourselves rather than in relation to God. Everything revolves around the central sun of our little egos, whether we tend toward the illusion of grandiosity or the illusion of worthlessness. The essence of sin is self-absorption. Self-absorption. It's all about me. And the power of the gospel is to uproot that sin out of our lives in a very fundamental way. So I've been saying every few weeks, uh, we've been going to the NPC site to look at the progress of the building and gauge when it might be that we can move to Wheeling. And during almost every one of these visits, I've got to be honest with you, there's been a moment where I've stood on that stage and looked out at the construction of the sanctuary. And sometimes they even have put a pulpit there so that I could stand behind that pulpit. And my imagination starts kicking in. And I thought about this state-of-the-art sanctuary that we're building. And I thought about all the real estate I'm going to have on a huge stage to walk back and forth and not run through the light of this projector or hit the instruments that are right here. It's funny, I don't know if Young Chick and Sharon are here today, but they said, you know you have a pattern, right? You walk in like this box, you know? And I go, I, I think it's because I feel like I'm in a box right here, you know? Um, 
I thought about my slides being projected on a screen twice the size through this 5,000 lumen laser-operated projector blowtorch that's going to make every image pop. And, you know, honestly, these fantasies start running of, wow, the sanctuary is going to be amazing that we're moving to. If there's a crying baby, they go to the quiet room, and we don't have to even hear them, rather than the floor of a gym, you know? (laughs) And I realize, even in our move to this new church building, how easily it can become so much more about me than about God. Um, Listen, if the technology enhances the teaching ministry at ICC, amen, okay, great. But I think as a church, we have to be constantly asking what God wants to do through our move to Wheeling and what that building represents for us in terms of his agenda for our congregation. The gospel alone can free us from the self-absorption because it teaches us that if we just entrust all of our needs and desires to God, he is going to take care of us. We don't have to make that happen for ourselves. To live our lives investing in his kingdom means that our decision-making rises above that instinct for self-preservation, for self-glorification, our self-interest, and says, honestly, what does God want? I want to be a servant to that will. You may be in a difficult marriage, and all you think about is how your personal happiness is being robbed by an insensitive spouse. But think of how your prayers for your marriage might change when you can see beyond your own pain to the greater things that God wants to accomplish through this difficulty. Maybe you're frustrated at work because of the endless drama of office politics. Maybe you've been passed aside for promotions because of all of the underhanded dealings in your office. How might God want to use you in such a toxic environment to touch the lives of the people that you are working with? I think this is what it means to be faithful stewards of the things that God has entrusted to us. It's interesting, but when you look at the rate of return that these faithful servants earned for their master, it's outrageous, okay? It's ridiculous. The rate of return from the first servant is 1,000%. For the second, it's a modest 500%, okay? But what's interesting is how humble they are about what they were able to produce out of the one mina. And their wording is important. It's a, they're saying, in essence, um, it was your mina that produced this great return. It was just your mina that did this, not me. In other words, I can't take credit for that part of it, God. Yes, I was faithful, but the fruitfulness was all you. That was what you did, God. You know, the truth is that often our acts of faithfulness on our own don't seem like much. But what God says is, you know, the results are not up to you. I can magnify that work so much more than you can imagine. 
You don't know the fullness of the impact you are making in your world through your limited vision. We won't know that until we're in heaven one day. That stuttering attempt to witness to that person and the feeling of utter failure when your words were not eloquent enough. Who knows how God could have used that witnessing opportunity? We just don't know the fruit that God is going to produce out of our faithfulness. One of the servants in the story stands out because of his faithlessness with what was entrusted to the master. It seems like this unfaithful servant bought into the lies being circulated by the master's enemies. And so he wraps the money in a handkerchief, tucks it in a corner, and forgets about it and does nothing with it. And when the master comes back and says, what have you done? What does he do? He totally blames the master, right? It's interesting how often we blame God for our own sins and failures. And he says, listen, I heard the news about you. I knew what a horrible person you are. And so I didn't want anything to do with you. So here's your money back. I never wanted it in the first place. Take it. A lot of people have speculated, was this third guy a Christian or not? Could he be called a Christian living a life like this? Now, I don't think the parable makes it very clear whether this third guy was saved or not. But there seems to be a distinction that Jesus is making between his household servants and the townspeople who ultimately do get killed in the end. It could be possible that this unfaithful Christian was a faithful servant was a Christian, like the one that Paul describes in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 to 15. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Okay? Meaning, he will be saved, but he will have nothing to show for this life. You know, we're all building something in this life, aren't we? We're all building something. But when it is tested in the fire of God, Not all of it is going to survive. And so the picture is for some Christians, they're going to stand on that judgment day and everything, their whole empire, everything they've worked so hard toward is going to go up in flames. And Jesus is going to say, nothing. There is nothing here. You are one who is alive, but like one who barely escaped a fire with none of his possessions. This is a picture of someone who is saved but looks forward to an eternity not having invested anything in that eternity. Now, let me be honest here. I think there are a lot of people in church who call themselves Christian who think like this. I can live with that. I can live with that. It's basically like getting the Best of both worlds, you know, because when I look at those radical Christians and all that self-denial, uh-uh, 
That's not for me. I, I don't go in for all that radical stuff, you know? Um, but if I can get what I want out of this life and enjoy the pleasures of this life, and then when I die, I still get to heaven, wow, win-win, you know? Like, I don't need the biggest mansion. I really, I'm a modest guy. I don't need the biggest mansion. Like, a two-bedroom flat on the edges of Kevin, I'm good with that. I can live with a studio apartment. But I want you to think about how little that shows of an honest understanding of heaven. I mean, if I were to honestly ask you guys, how many of you want to go to heaven when you die? I'm going to guess every hand in this room is going to go up. Otherwise, I don't think you would be here today, okay? But what if I were to ask you a second question? How many of you would go right now if you could? I'm going to guess that those hands are going to be a lot fewer. I'm guessing hardly any of us, in fact, would take that opportunity if it was presented to us. And we had a chance right now to be zapped up to heaven. That's because, I think, the truth is, most of us have some serious doubts as to whether heaven is going to live up to all the hype, you know? Um, Because I think the truth is we've bought into the picture that the world presents of heaven, the mockery that they make of it. Comedian Rick Reynolds says, as far as I can tell from studying the scriptures, all you do in heaven is pretty much just sit around all day and praise the Lord. I don't know how about you, but I think after about the first, oh, I don't know, 50 million years, of that, I start to get a little bored, okay? The classic mockery of heaven is floating around on clouds, playing a harp for eternity. Maybe interesting the first hour, but not forever. And this couldn't be further from the picture of heaven that we're given in the pages of Scripture. The master doesn't tell the faithful servants, good job. Here's your golden harp. Find a cloud. Doesn't say that. He assigns them authority over cities. The picture of heaven is that we'll continue to do many of the things that we do on earth when we get to heaven, but with one huge difference. There will be no more sin. No more sin. Now, I want you to imagine the best day that you've ever had on earth in your short life, okay? Just can you you picture a moment like that when you felt like life is good, everything is the way it's supposed to be? Have you had one? The truth is probably for most of us, there aren't many of those days, okay? You don't get a whole lot of them in this life, do you? But maybe you've had one of those days. The weather is perfect, no drama in the family, work is great, you're bank account looks awesome, no car trouble, okay? And you say, it doesn't get any better than this. And here's the message. That best day on earth pales in comparison to the worst day in heaven. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? In other words, imagine doing many of the same things you do in this life except without any murder or rape or cancer, or racism, or poverty. Imagine working but never being tired 
or sleeping. Imagine every single relationship that you have being freed from any ulterior motives of selfishness or misunderstanding. Imagine having nothing to hide in front of others because there is no deeper darkness in your heart, nothing that you have to cover for. Imagine for a moment the strongest warm feeling you ever have had being in God's presence. Maybe it was at a retreat or a moment of worship or in your conversion. I don't know. That moment when God felt most real and near to you. And now imagine being able to see his face every day. You see? If you wouldn't want to be there right now, you're crazy. You are crazy. If you wouldn't give up this life in this instant to be in heaven, I don't think you understand what heaven is. You would be insane not to want to be there right now. You know, Jesus did enter Jerusalem. And he was celebrated as a victorious king. But in less than a week, a delegation of people would gather who would shout at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want this guy as our king. And the crown that he was given was a crown of thorns. And then he would die nailed to a Roman cross. And here's the truth. Everyone witnessing these events unfold must have thought, despite this parable that he taught a week earlier, that just like Herod's son Archelaus, who wanted to be king but never realized that dream, Jesus was in the same boat. He failed. He failed. But the message of the gospel is that on that cross, through what seemed like the worst imaginable failure ever, God accomplished his greatest victory, and Jesus was crowned king. That's the gospel. And this is Jesus' message. One day, I will come back. One day, I will return as a reigning king. And everyone who mocked me, everyone who didn't believe, everyone who made fun of you, saying, what ridiculous people you are as Christians, one day, you will be vindicated. One day I will put to rest everyone who thought they knew better. And so he says this, be faithful, have faith, and persevere, and live to please me because I will return. I'm coming back. Let's pray. The story of the gospel is the story of a, of a king who goes to a distant land and seeks a kingship. But he's confronted by people who don't want him as king. And they try to thwart his every efforts to reign over them. And that's the story of our world that we live in today is at times this feeling like you know, where are you, God? Why, why don't you stand, stick up for yourself? Why do you just let everyone mock you like this? 
And why do you make us feel like so often like we're on the losing team? Like we're the fools. We're the dumb ones. And so Jesus tells this parable to his disciples to get them ready for this time. And says, you know, it's going to feel like I'm gone. It's going to feel very lonely and it's going to be very hostile. I'm asking you to conduct my business and represent me in in an environment where you will be hated. But he says, you know, please, engage in the business that I have asked of you. Because I will return. I will return one day and set everything right. And he says, when I come in my glory, I'm going to come with my rewards for everyone who didn't bow to the pressures of my enemies but was faithful to me. And you're going to feel like what you did was not much. But with the little that you have been faithful, the rewards are going to be unbelievable. It's just crazy to me to think that as Christians, we don't long for heaven because we're too vested in this world. You know, it's this message like, you don't know what that glory is going to be like. You don't know how good it is. And how can we let go of these cheap substitutes if we don't see that vision of the glory that awaits us? If we don't see that, then we're going to grasp like desperate people for everything we can get in this life. But when we really believe the words of our master, suddenly we can let go of everything and surrender it all and be the faithful servants that he wills us to be. Because the future that awaits us is so much greater than whatever we have gone through and suffered in this life. Let me just invite you to pray for a few minutes to God. Invite his work to be done in your heart. Give me that faith, God. Because a lot of times, I just, it, it does feel like it's always about me. And I'm always sulking in my own self-pity about what's not being done for my happiness. But give me this vision of heaven. Give me this vision of a reigning king who reigns over me and is coming to take me back one day. And give me the faith to align my entire life's priorities around that belief. Let's pray.